0: Friends, I'd invite you to uh, open your Bibles with me. We're gonna be we're gonna be moving at a clip this morning. I'm just, uh, but uh, we'll be a number of times we'll be in the book of Romans. So if you're in the general area of Romans, if you're one of those that likes to keep your sword drills up to date and able to find the books in your Bible and able to turn along with us, uh, we'll have a number of passages in Romans. But we've started again as uh, we began a brief series, uh, a late fall series a couple weeks ago uh, we, we talked about the danger of drift, mission drift, and for believers to drift in their faith. If you're just drifting along, the old word for that was backsliding. We always think of backsliding as doing something actively bad as a Christian and moving away. But Scripture says if you're just drifting along, you're letting the currents of our culture, this fallen world, carry you along with them, and you won't be growing in your faith. You'll be moving With the world. And we don't want to move with the world because Jesus pictured this world as on a broad road moving toward destruction. He says, I'm the gate, I'm the narrow way. Those who walk by faith walk that narrow way. And so uh, we don't want to drift. And it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, the first verses, it says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels and he's referring always in the book of Hebrews to the Old Testament because the Christians, uh, Jewish Christians being persecuted uh, wanted to turn in their Christian identity card and just go back to being known as Jews. He says, for if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And so in these uh, weeks, I've called this uh, brief series, Such a Great Salvation. And we want to focus squarely on, uh, on what Jesus has done for us. What sets Christianity apart from world religions? We talked a couple weeks ago before that Banff conference about the sin problem. We are sinners in need of salvation. This great salvation is something that every man, woman, and young person in this world needs. It's truly a matter of life and death. We know physical death comes from the sin problem. And we know that spiritual death and separation as well is an outworking eternally of the sin problem the world though sees it differently the world knows there are good things and bad things you don't have to be a Christian to do something good there are many people who do wonderful things the scripture teaches that's not enough it's not on the screen but we know the New Testament quotes Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 that says in God's eyes our most righteous works are like filthy rags. We're not fit to stand in the presence of a holy God. It would literally kill us. We would be destroyed because of our sin. It separates us from God. And though we know there is evil, we don't need to be a Christian to know that there is evil, that there is good. In fact, that's part of the curse. We ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we gain that knowledge firsthand by our own sin. The world says, though, Yeah, it all come out okay. I have a a balance up there, something that many religions, world religions especially, but many people in their everyday life have a vague notion that as long as the good you do outweighs the bad, you're doing good, you're okay, that there's no way God could turn you away. Some religions call it karma, the path of good. Do good so that good things will come back to you. It's just the world thing. It's, it's good works, good deeds. As a boy, I was part of the Boy Scouts of America. And those are the ones they, they would teach us to do good deeds. We were always on the lookout for a little old lady standing helpless on a street corner so we could leap into action, give her her arm and lead her across the street. Never saw one. I don't know if they actually exist. Those little old ladies are driving great big cars and if you don't look out across the street, they'll run you right over. So, (laughs) we all understand though that there are people who do good. Isn't that enough? How could God shrug that off? It's part of human nature to think good deeds are, are enough. But today's message, I've called it Good Works don't work and I base this on scripture and as I said we're going to move along see a number of scriptures this morning at a clip and uh, it's good to know that our works are like filthy rags but scripture says a lot about this important subject of our good works our good deeds what role they play if any Let's look at that this morning. The first thing we want to do is just to reprise what we talked about a couple weeks, just very briefly, that we have a sin problem. It's fatal for all of us. The wages of sin is death. As Romans 3.23 reminds us, there is no difference for all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Oftentimes the world tells you that you are like you are because of your upbringing. You're a victim of circumstances. We live in the church and in the world in a therapeutic mindset that says that uh, we're all sick and we need to be fixed and we need to be in therapy of one kind or another. Scripture says it's not nature or it's not nurture rather. It's more nature. It's an internal problem that we have it's a brokenness a fundamental brokenness that does play out in abusive toxic situations and in the broken hurtful world we see that victimizes so many people but the truth is we're not victims we're victimizers we all are red-handed sinners and it's an internal problem the book of James says in James chapter 1 James is Speaking of sin and the fact that it's not external. It doesn't just come from temptation. And some people said, well, when God tests you, he's tempting you to sin. James puts a stop to that when he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Then it talks about what really goes on in us. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire... He's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The cycle of sin and death, it is internal. And it's part of the makeup of every soul in this broken world we live in. Jesus says it's not something you can get over just by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. He dealt with religious legalists. They believed that the law was given as a ticket to heaven. The book of Galatians says the Old Testament law was to show us that we're sinners, that we couldn't keep the law, that by nature we were lawbreakers. But in Jesus' time, the Pharisees and others felt they kept the law just right. Thank you very much. And God owed it to them because of their good works to let them into heaven. But Jesus says, no, none of you are without sin. And he says in John chapter 8, that powerful passage in verse 33, Jesus said that we're your slaves to sin. And they rejected that. We're free, they said. We're not slaves. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone which always makes me laugh because claiming that you're Jews and have never been slaves to anyone when that basically is the history of Judaism from, from bondage in Egypt all the way on and at Jesus' time they were in bondage to the Romans we've never been slaves of anyone how can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied I tell you the truth everyone who sins is a slave to sin a slave you can't escape it. It's chains, the cycle of sin and death. We need a Savior. Jesus came on God's rescue mission for this broken, hurting, and lost world. But mankind rejects that in favor of our own answers to the sin problem. And simply put, no matter how you dress it up in religiosity or just common sense, mankind's answer is basically salvation through good deeds. Drop a, drop a loony in the, the beggar's cup. You've done your good deed for the day. You're okay. doesn't matter who you are on the inside. Just a few external good deeds. That should be enough. I don't have to tell you, this is not a modern invention. We still play it out in modern times, though I think we're drifting away. More and more people don't feel they owe anybody anything in this imminently selfish time we live. But that is an ancient concept. I have a picture from a papyrus that 's an ancient form of paper made out of reeds that my son Mike and I a couple of years ago in the British Museum, were such nerds we just spend our time in museums you know and historical places and, and until they close and kick us out in the evening. But one of the papyri we saw is is, is a wonderful copy, beautifully preserved, of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. These are the pictures you often see painted on the walls of tombs. It's a series of magical spells that, if applied to your life in the Egyptian religion, would get you to eternal life. Now, it's like a cartoon, and, and, and where Hebrew, they read uh, something from uh, right to left, the Egyptians were like us in English. They read from left to right. So you see, this is, this is the man who had this papyrus created. His name was Hunnefer. And Hunnefer was a high-ranking official. He oversaw, if you can believe it or not, he was the overseer of the Pharaoh's cattle over all those cows. And this was a great pharaoh. It was Seti the first, one of the top drawer pharaohs of ancient Egypt. Now, Hunnifer, uh, he is the little guy in the white robe down in the cartoon. And you see, there he is holding hands with Anubis, the Egyptian god of the dead. You know that because his head's shaped like a jackal. Jackals are always around graveyards. Hence, the god of death has a jackal head. Anubis takes Hunnifer, though, after his death to Judgment Day, because that's what this depicts, judgment day. The next picture we see Anubis, he's kneeling under the great scales of your life, your good deeds. That scale is an ancient concept. On the left hand side is a canopic jar, that tiny little jar, it contains Hunifer's heart. The Egyptians thought your heart was the seat not only of emotion and thought, but all of your decision making, all of your sins and good deeds are stored up in your heart. Now the heart is put on one pan of the scale and on the other pan is a feather, an ostrich feather. This ma'at feather symbolized, in Egyptian thought, it symbolized righteousness, truth, justice, the proper way of life. And if your heart was too heavy, it would weigh down with sin. It wouldn't balance with the proper way of living. Now, if you failed the test and you had a heavy heart, because this is where the phrase lighthearted began, you want a light heart, carrying no sins, and then the feather will be equal to it. Well, if you failed the test one of the scarier looking creatures in Egyptian thought, there is a monster under the scale. He's called the devourer. He's one third, and that's the back third, hippopotamus. He's got those sturdy legs of a hippo. His front half, he's a lion, but his face, he's a crocodile, for better for eating your heart. Okay? And so he would eat you up. You would be destroyed. But if you had no sin, if you had lived a life of good deeds, and you prove that, By telling the 42 judges across the top there, you recited all of the things you have not done. You didn't tell them your good deeds, but you told them, I have not murdered. I have not lusted. I have not stolen. And you just worked through your whole life. And then if you passed all of those tests, whew. Then you would go as Hunifer did, led by Horus with the falcon head, to the god of the underworld, Osiris. You always know him because he's green, because he's dead as well. And there's Osiris with his wives behind him, welcoming Hunifer hopefully, into the afterlife. Good deeds. That's what it's all about. Just that your good outweighs the bad. Now we always, we think of people... Head and shoulders above others with good deeds. Here's a couple examples from the 20th century. Uh, one of those is uh, Andrew Carnegie, who was a young boy born in Scotland, immigrated to the U.S. at 12 years old, immediately went to work as a telegraph operator, not formally educated, but through incredible hard work. He then became a railroad man. And then he saw what the railways were made out of, and he moved into steel and ironworks. And uh, he eventually sold out in 1901 to J.P. Morgan, and his company became U.S. Steel. He was probably the most wealthy man in the world at that time. But at age 35, though he had a Presbyterian background, he wasn't a practicing believer, but at 35, he quit making money. He put himself on an allowance and everything else over that he gave away for the good of others. He wanted to be known as a man who did good deeds. He built those famous Carnegie libraries. There were no free libraries. Poor people didn't have any access to anything to educate them. And so in his lifetime, he built almost 3000 Carnegie libraries, paid the bill for them. In Canada alone, there's one hundred and twenty five of them that he built. He built them around the world. A man of immense good deeds. you don 't have to tell you who the other person is. Uh, her name was Anjish Bojachu Anjish Bojachu, a young girl from Albania, better known to the world as a nun who took the name Mary uh, Teresa known later as Mother Teresa for she founded the Missionaries of Charity branch of the Catholic Church. Her good deeds as the Angel of Calcutta, not without controversy even in her life, but she was uh, canonized in 2015 and elevated to the place of saint. She's a patron saint of Calcutta and people pray to her hoping that their prayers will reach God because of her incredible good deeds. Of helping the poorest of the poor. We still value good deeds. But none of us tend to think we could match the good deeds of people like Carnegie or Mother Teresa. They're a special lot. But we still try. In religious circles, we love to be seen to be do good deeds. We call it, when we... Adopt that good deed mindset as our way of salvation, a way to earn God's favor? Well, the Bible calls that it's, it's legalism. The Judaizers constantly harass the early church trying to get them to follow the rules and to earn God's favor by good works. The lure of legalism. Jesus speaking to his Jewish opponents, the, the Pharisees, in Mark chapter 7. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, "Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands?" They were all in trouble for not washing their hands ceremonially before they ate. Now the traditions of the elders, that's not God's word. That's all of the Jewish teachings on top of it to allow them to feel that they had pleased God and earned God's favor by their traditions. Jesus in verse six, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the, to the traditions of men. Trying to earn God's favor. Their pride was behind it all. Pride is always a big part of legalism. Judging others because they do, don't live up to our expectations. Now, mankind's answer, is that enough? What scriptures say about our desire to please God through philanthropy and through hard work and through good deeds? Well, God's answer is twofold. The first is, We're saved not by our hard works. We don't earn it. We're saved by grace. Unmerited favor. Something you didn't deserve. Now that's hard for us, especially hard for us religious legalists to let go of uh, feeling that we're following the rules and we're pleasing God and just accept that we can't do it on our own. We're slaves to sin. We need a Savior. But Jesus came... To bring God's grace. A gift. Of course, the key passage in this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. Or rather, 8 and 9. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works. So that no one can boast. It's a gift. You can't earn it. We earn the wages of sin, death. But salvation is a gift, not by works. Paul, writing to Titus, emphasized that you cannot be saved by works. In Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's the source of the free gift, the mercy of, And love of God. It's humbling. Not saved by the righteous things we've done. We like to look at the sinful world and measure ourselves against them. You know, we think of the scale oftentimes as, I'm better than that person. Or I'm better than that person. (laughs) That's setting a very low bar. Sinners measuring themselves by one another. We couldn't do it, so God saved us. And it was based on His heart, His mercy not our works. To put a, to put a, a underline that, we go to Romans chapter 11. Paul speaking of the fact that at every age, there's a righteous remnant, that God preserves them, not because they deserve it, but based on God's mercy and grace. Speaking of, of, of the Jews, that there's still a believing remnant. Paul writes in chapter 11 of Romans. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. You can't add your effort to your salvation. You can't add it. It's not going to make you more saved. Because if you add works to it, Paul says, it's no longer grace. You're on the wrong track. You have to accept it as grace, as a gift. As we saw earlier, though, how is that gift applied to us? How do we receive it? It says we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved not only by grace, but we're saved through faith. And faith, as we talk to the kids at Kids Club uh, each week, is simply trusting. We talk to them how they trust their mom and dad more than anyone else. And we trust our Heavenly Father, for He is trustworthy that the grace He offers will save. That what Jesus did on the cross is effective for us today. We're saved by grace through faith. As I mentioned earlier in Romans, uh, the book of Romans, uh, in chapter 4, verses 4 to 8, we read about the faith that, uh, that Abraham was justified by. Verse 4, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift you earn them but as an obligation however to the man who does not work but trusts god who justifies the wicked who justifies the wicked his faith is credited as righteousness david says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom god credits righteousness apart from works Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will never count against him. This is by faith in God's grace, not our works. This is the great salvation that we cannot ignore. We need to focus on it. We need to live in it and let it work its way through our lives. A little further down in Romans, it says in chapter 5, the justification of faith. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The grace of God, the gift of salvation, is always received, enter into Through faith. Faith alone, not works. It's one of those sola scriptura, sola fide that uh, Martin Luther stood for. By faith alone, by faith alone, can we enter into that saving grace. That amazing grace. Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes... We who are Jews by birth, I'm starting a little earlier than what's on the screen. It says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, the air quotes are implied there. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. No one. When Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees earlier, they were arguing over washing your hands and eating clean versus unclean food. And it says in verse 19 of that chapter that in saying this, Jesus declared all food clean, which went right to the heart of the Pharisees. Because do you realize the Pharisees, that great school of religion, They were founded as a kosher diner's club. They were actually founded as a group to be able to keep a clean table, to have proper dishes, that uh, the meat was completely different uh, pots and dishes to be prepared in than anything with dairy. They followed all those hard and expensive rules so they could brag about obeying all of the laws. But when Jesus declared all food clean, took away a lot of that legalism. I remember years ago being on a trip and noticing that uh, some people, their food choices were a little bit different than the others. And they weren't Jewish. They weren't Muslim. They didn't have kosher halal dietary needs. And I, I asked them about it. And they say, well, we believe that God still wants us to eat according to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And I, I said, but Jesus declared all food clean. They didn't want to hear any part of it. Because they felt good following rules. We always do. It's a lure. It's a temptation to us. Rather than resting in amazing grace through faith in Jesus. So, if good works don't work, you don't have to do them. You're all free. Go on home. Watch some football now. Enjoy the rest of your day. No, cut that out on YouTube later. The truth is, they're vital for us. You are not saved by good works. The Scripture tells us we're saved to do those works. They don't save us, but it becomes who we are. We don't have an ulterior motive to earn God's favor. Just as a man, well, we shouldn't. Sometimes we do. You shouldn't always do the math in your head. Well, if I buy this chocolates and those flowers, then I'll add it all up and I will have wifely favor you know yeah you know, um, ulterior motive no you do it because you love them mercy grace and our deeds are done out of love the scripture says as we saw recently we're to love god love one another and even love our enemies it's all about our actions being based on heart of love in fact We're to shine God's love in our actions. People should see Jesus shining through us. Unfortunately, if we get religious on them and go the path and follow the lure of legalism, we will drive people away. You drive them away. I've read recently a wonderful quote. A man said, he says, legalism drives more people from Jesus than Darwinism. Because people actively are repelled by hypocrisy. And people thinking they're better than us and judging us pushes people away. No, we want to show them God's love. We're sinners saved by grace. And we want to offer that good news to those around us. We want to shine God's love in our actions. To continue that important passage, Ephesians chapter 2, that says we are saved by grace through faith. Verse 10 says... For we are God's workmanship. We're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a wonderful plan for your life, and it includes being a blessing. Why does He love us so? Why does He bless us so? Because He wants to make us a blessing to a lost and hurting world. You are His missionaries. You are his light to shine in this dark world. And people see the validity of your proclamation by the life behind it. A person who, in their own small way, practices what they preach. They're a good neighbor. They're good in business. They're honest. They treat people well. They see a need. They seek to meet it. Remember, that's the answer to the question of Jesus Who's my neighbor if I'm to love my neighbor? Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a person no matter who they are. They're from the wrong culture. Your your tribe's enemies, whoever they are. If there's a need you can meet, they're your neighbor. And you need to act in love. As we talked recently, God's love, remember, is putting the well-being of others ahead of ourselves. Hebrews chapter 10 says that's a big part of what we need to be doing as churches, as the family of God. We need to be encouraging one another and spurring one another on. This chapter has been quoted a lot through the pandemic. Do not forsake gathering together, taking it all out of context, because the gathering together is for encouragement. It's for encouragement. And one of the things we do in encouragement, it says, is to spur one another on. Says, let us hold unswervingly. Remember, these are people under persecution, even considering quitting on Christianity to go back to being Jews. No, the author says, there's none of that possible. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And then it goes on, let us not give up meeting together to encourage one another. See, the encouragement is to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We show that love and good deeds first to the family of God. Charity truly begins at home in the family of God. We need to take care of one another. Take care of one another. But in a hurting world, we also need to shine God's love to them. As Jesus says, that beautiful aside in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll start a little earlier and put it in context. We close with this. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. People are helped. They're blessed. And we don't receive the credit. It goes through us to God Himself. People see that. A life lived that way won't repel and push people away. It's one of the things God uses by His Spirit to draw people to Himself. Let's let God speak to us now as we pray. And as we pray, I'll call the worship team to lead us in a closing song. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your answer to the sin problem. Lord, left to ourselves, we would try to earn your favor. Or more often than not, Lord, we'd throw up our hands and just let life take its course. We would despair. But Father, we have hope because we have a trustworthy God. We have a God whose heart is one of mercy and grace and love. And Lord, that amazing saving grace, that gift is only received as we hold out empty hands to you in faith. And Lord, you save us. So Father, grow us in grace. May we be people seasoned with grace as we shine your love and your amazing grace to a hurting world. Speak to us, we pray.